You know, I remember being in high school and being taught history, world history in particular, and obviously when you go through world history, you've got to be able to cover some of the major world wars that we've been through, World War I and World War II. But what was interesting to me is that later in life when I started to work professionally, I was first um, a computer uh, technology business consultant before I was um, saved. Um, I got the opportunity to work in various parts of the globe. And when I think of World War II, the two countries that we stood uh, most prominently against was first Japan um, after the bombing of Pearl Harbor and then later um, Germany um, with Hitler and the Nazi regime um, running Germany. And it was interesting because I got to work in both places. I first was in Japan for 13 months, and, and it was interesting, the contrast between America and Japan. You know, as part of what happened in World War II, Japan can no longer field their own military. Um, the, there, there was a lot of uh, restrictions placed upon them to avoid some of the things that had happened in the past. And their mindset towards war, I'm sure, was very, very different uh, compared to the World War II days when they were looking to establish their imperialistic uh, goals. Um, but then after working in Japan, I, I worked in Japan for a company out there that had offices all over the world and got to talk to people in Singapore and, and Germany as well as the U.S., um, I had noticed that um, Germans um, actually are quite, a, quite fluent at speaking English. Most Germans you meet um, will speak English, and that's not true for all Europeans. And so when I went to Germany, um, I remember my f first visit to Germany, I was taken to Munich, and um, from the airport I was uh, taken in a Mercedes-Benz taxi cab. Um, only in Germany, at least the only place I've ever been to where the taxi cabs are actually Mercedes-Benz. Uh, but I remember speaking to the lady and and uh, we had this conversation, and I, I was telling her, I was like, I, I noticed that um, Germans tend to speak um, English quite well compared to other European countries. And her response was, oh, yeah, um, that's because you guys beat us in the war. And I had to pause for a moment and think about that, and I'm like, World War II? And she said, yeah, you, you guys beat us in World War II, so we figured since you're the dominant nation, we should learn your language. I was like, wow, that's, that's fascinating. You know, and, uh, and being there, I, I learned a lot more just about their culture and, and, and really how you'll find in politics and in news, you'll, you'll very seldomly, if ever, hear Germany ever say anything that denounces Israel, um, obviously because of what happened in World War II and the sensitivity that's involved there. But it's interesting having that experience um, in both countries and, and seeing how the, the effects of the war really propagated itself in those countries really brought new life to my understanding of how these wars have affected history, how it has affected the world and the various countries and cultures. You know, but this is also true when we go to the scriptures, because just as we may read a biography and it helps bring new life uh, to the history surrounding that biography, we can often go to the scriptures and really start to understand God's word in whole new dimensions. Um, understand it in ways that gives us a greater appreciation for the message of the Bible and certainly the gospel that had been proclaimed. So this morning is no exception as we go to God's word, and we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 3, verses uh, 1 through 7. Um, but before I begin, let's go ahead and just read through the entire section, or actually, at least our section for this morning. And really our section starts in, chap in verse 1, chapter 3, verse 1, and goes all the way down to verse 13. But for this morning, we're going to be covering the first seven verses. And uh, you'll see that up there on the slide, um, but I would encourage you to also open up your Bible and follow along. So Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, let's go ahead and read through it. For this reason... 
I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. So those are the seven verses I plan to cover this morning, and I'm going to break it up into three points. The three points are not in your bulletin, so you're going to have to write these down as we go. Um, but the first point, as we take a look at this, and it, just as a reminder, you'll see in, the, in what's provided in your bulletin that the title is God's Gracious Work in Paul's Ministry. And my purpose this morning is to help us understand God's work in progressing the gospel through people like Paul so that we would be encouraged to greater faithfulness in our gospel stewardship today. Um, so as we take a look at this, our first point this morning is going to be the stewardship of Paul. The stewardship of Paul. Paul speaks about his stewardship in really the first couple of verses. And as we take a look at verse 1, it starts off um, with the phrase, for this reason. Now, for this reason, that traces back to the prior section. Um, chapter 2, verses 11 through 12, and more specifically, we can look at verses 19 to 22. So if you look at Ephesians 2, verses 19 to 22, should be up there on the screen. Ephesians 2, 19 to 22, just a reminder, we covered this the last couple of weeks. Um, Paul says this, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. And that's a magnificent truth with regards to how God has broken down barriers to help bring together people groups, in this case the Jews and the Gentiles, but by implication all groups together into one new man. For those who have been saved by Christ. But also later in chapter 3, when we look up at the slide, chapter 3, verse 14, Paul is going to start verse 14 the same way he started verse 1. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. What's happening here in verse 1, as we come back to it, what's happening here in verse 1 is that Paul is actually starting off a prayer. He's actually starting to pray, but it's going to get interrupted. But let's read the rest of this beginning. Verse 1 says, For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus. Now, it's very interesting that he calls himself the prisoner of Christ Jesus. This is one of those hints. When you read through books, you can find out the context of books, often from the book itself. And this is one of those contexts where Paul says he is a prisoner. This is a reminder to us of his imprisonment. He had been imprisoned in various places, but most prominently, he was imprisoned in Rome. He was imprisoned in Rome, awaiting the opportunity to speak to Caesar. And so he is a prisoner. But what's interesting is he doesn't say he is a prisoner of Caesar. He doesn't say he was a prisoner because of what the Jews had done, though that would have been true as well. He's not a prisoner of the Roman Empire, but instead he says prisoner of Christ Jesus. Now, why does he say that? Well, in many ways, Paul's situation was much like Christ. 
When we think about the life of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, he came to testify about himself, but before he was crucified, he was what? He was imprisoned, right? He was imprisoned, he was given a, a false trial, and, and, uh, and then sent to the cross to die. So very much in the same way, Paul's life in many ways uh, mirrors that of Jesus Christ. He too is being imprisoned. Now in these days, in those days I should say, one of the challenges for people hearing the gospel shortly after Jesus Christ had, had died, been resurrected, and ascended up into heaven, one of the challenges for people hearing the gospel is this idea of how can we proclaim someone as king who is actually crucified by the Roman government? Because that, to a lot of people, looked like an absolute failure. And much the same way as Paul is known as the apostle to the Gentiles, Paul is being imprisoned, and a lot of the churches are concerned for him. They're concerned about the gospel ministry because he was the preeminent apostle to the Gentiles in bringing the gospel out to them. But Paul here, he calls himself a prisoner of Christ Jesus, recognizing that he is doing the will of God. And it's only by the sovereign control of God and his son, Jesus Christ, that he is actually in prison. He is in prison for the sake of Jesus Christ. So ultimately, while he is, yes, a prisoner of Caesar, while, yes, because of the Jews plight against him earlier on, he asked for that opportunity to speak to Caesar. He knows that ultimately he is a prisoner of Christ Jesus. That what he does, he does in service to the Lord our King. And that should be our mindset as well. But going on, he goes on not only to say that he is the prisoner of Christ Jesus, but he also says that it's for the sake of you Gentiles. It is for the sake of you Gentiles. Now, this reminds us of Paul's commission. And if we look at the next slide, I'm going to take you to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, verses 13 through 16, as a reminder, Paul had already been blinded on the road to Damascus. Uh, Jesus reaches out to a disciple by the name of Ananias, tells Ananias to go seeking after Paul. And in verse 13, Ananias's response is, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has the authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. So Ananias, his response back to the Lord is like, are you sure you got the right guy? Because I know this, I know this man, and this man is, is one of the main persecutors of the church. Christians, believers everywhere are afraid of him. But verse 15, look at what the Lord says back, and it's very interesting. He says, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine. To do what? To bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel but then verse 16 is one that we often don't recognize or we miss or we, we don't recognize the significance of this. Verse 16, he says, For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. And so Paul recognizes that he has not only been commissioned to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, but he also recognizes that as part of that commission, he is going to suffer. He is going to be persecuted. He is going to be imprisoned, and in various places of Paul's other letters, he provides a list of all the various things that has happened to him because of this. And it's an amazing turnaround when you think about Paul's life, that he was once the Hebrew of Hebrews. He, he was a rising superstar within the Pharisaical ranks. He was one of the chief persecutors of the Christian church, and now he not only has been saved, but now he is defending even Gentiles and their right to be saved through the gospel, even willing to be so, even, even willing to, to suffer for the sake of Christ. 
But as we continue on in verse 2, going back to Ephesians 3, verse 2, he, at this point, he switches topics. So verse 1, he was about to start a prayer. He's going to resume it again in verse 14, but he switches topics. And you'll notice at the end of verse 1, you've got this long dash. And then verse two, he he kind of goes off a little bit. He he diverts and he says, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you. Now, why would he say if indeed you have heard? After all, he was at Ephesus for three whole years. Certainly they would have known who he was. Well, we have to consider the timing and you may not realize this It's not obvious from just reading through the accounts, but most historical timelines uh, put Paul's time at Ephesus to be between 52 to 55 AD. So from 52 to 55, he spent three years in Ephesus, and it was not until 61 or 62 AD that he's actually in Rome. So from, in other words, from the time that he was last in Ephesus, which would have been 55 AD, about seven years have expired, have gone past uh, to, to his impri- imprisonment. So as he's writing to the church at Ephesus, certainly there's a lot of people that would remember Paul, but since then there's probably been a lot of converts as well. And Ephesus, as I r- remind you, was a very large area. I mean, the, the entire area of Ephesus uh, is estimated to be about a quarter million people. And so a lot of people believe that the letter to the Ephesian church was actually a, a circular letter that circulated to many groups um, across the region. So there was a lot of people that may not have been completely acquainted with Paul. So that's why he says, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you. Because as Paul identified himself in verse one as the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles, if you're not acquainted with Paul, that identification might sound very strange. First, why is he a prisoner of Christ? Are you saying that Jesus arrested you? Second, why is it because of us Gentiles? Did we, are we the ones that sent you to, to prison? You know, is it because of us? You know, so those questions might be confusing to a new convert. And that's what Paul's going to go on to explain, that this was a ministry given to him. And so as we continue on, we think, consider the stewardship of God's grace. The stewardship of God's grace. Stewardship really just means management um, in the Greek. Um, So he's been given kind of this management of God's grace. And that might sound strange to you, but each one of us have been given stewardship as well. God has entrusted each one of us, for example, with the gospel. He has entrusted each one of you with the gifts and talents that he has provided by his sovereign care and control in order for you to be of a blessing to your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, But in addition, he also says the stewardship of God's grace. Now, we know when we think of God's grace, we think first and foremost of our own salvation, right? But there is also grace in really ministry opportunities. There is grace in many aspects and many realities that come forth because of the gospel. And then he says, which was given for me, this stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you. See, this stewardship was not simply just given to Paul in order for him to keep. The stewardship was given to him in order for him to share, to proclaim to go out into the world and make sure that people understood and knew this truth. But this is the stewardship of Paul, as he mentions. And as we consider this stewardship of Paul, he is going to go into the mystery, a mystery that had not been known in the Old Testament. And that's where we transition from um, the stewardship of Paul to the mystery of Christ. 
We go from the stewardship of Paul to the mystery of Christ. And um, by the way, that, that verse up there on the, on the screen, um, that's, a, that's a good verse. You may recognize the saying, well done, good and faithful servant, right? I mean, raise your hand if you'd like to hear the Lord say that to you in a future time. Okay, all of you, all right? And I, I hear Christians saying this quite often. You may not recognize, though, when we think about that verse, you may not recognize where exactly that comes from. Well, as we look up at the screen, where that comes from is the parable of the talents, the parable of the talents, Matthew 25, 14 through 30. And just read that real quick. Verse 20 says, the one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more talents. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Verse 22, also the one who had received the two talents came and said, Master, you entrusted two talents to me. See, I have gained two more talents. And his master once again said, well done, good and faithful slave. And actually the word is slave and not servant. We often think of it as servant because the slave word slave has so many negative connotations in our country. But this is where it comes from. And the idea is that we are stewards of the uh, of what God has given to us and we're not just to keep it but we're to actually make good on it we're actually to provide fruit we're actually to produce fruit as a result of that Um, so you had you too have been entrusted with a stewardship not simply just Paul but now we'll go into the next section as he as we talked about Paul's stewardship we're now going to transition into the second point which is the mystery of Christ the mystery of Christ, because his stewardship is very much connected to this mystery. And we look at verse three and it says that by revelation, there was made known to me the mystery as I write before, wrote before in brief. Now, when he says by revelation, um, this is to explain what this stewardship of God's grace was. Verse two, he said, I have received what well, it was given to me, the stewardship of God's grace. What was that stewardship? Well, verse three explains it that by revelation, there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief. Now, when we see the word revelation, who is that coming from? Who is revelation? Who does revelation come from? It comes from God. So when we say when we see that by revelation, this is not a matter of wisdom or intelligence or or research. Paul is saying that this was revealed to me by God. And that's made even more clear when he says that by revelation, there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. Now, the word mystery, we can often you know, we, we, we tend to assign mystical kind of um, meaning to it. But really, mystery was anything that was just not revealed until a later time. Uh, literally, it's talking about something that was covered, and now it's being revealed. So a mystery is anything that simply was not known before. Now, this word mystery, it's used 27 times in the New Testament. Paul actually uses it 20 times, and he uses it six times here in Ephesians, which is more than any other letter. Now, we have to be careful when you see the word mystery. It's kind of like if you hear someone tell you that I have a secret I want to share with you, right? You hear from one person and then another person may come up to you and say, I have, I have a secret to share with you. You might go home and your, your, your wife and your husband might say, I have a secret to share with you. Now, you wouldn't assume that each and every single person that says that is talking about the same secret. All right. Just like here, when we see mystery, you've got to you've got to be careful about automatically associating mystery from one letter to mystery to another letter. But typically, when we see this mystery of God, it is usually connected to the gospel. 
and something that was revealed through the gospel. And while we know the gospel to be simple and, and, and easy to understand and praise God for that, um, we also recognize that there is tremendous richness to what the gospel has achieved. And so he talks about this mystery and he says, as I wrote before in brief at the end of verse three, this is probably referring to the prior section, as we will see in a moment. Uh, the prior section, remember, he talked about how Jews and Gentiles were brought together by the work of Christ. And then when we continue onwards to verse four, he says, by referring to this, referring to this refers to that revelation of mystery. He says, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. Now, when he says when you read, this is another cue from us that the letters that Paul sent out recognize that believers at this time did not have the entire New Testament. It had not been written. It had not been circulated in many cases for the believers that were here in Ephesus. Um, this might perhaps have been the only book of the New Testament that they had available to them, though they probably had some exposure to one of the gospel books as well. But they really didn't have a whole lot of access that we have today. We often take this for granted today. But Paul says when you read, when you read, his letters were intended to be read. They were intended to be studied. They were intended to be understood. Um, it's a reminder to us that the people of that day, though, though they were in context, they would have understood a lot more right off the bat than we would when we read through this. They, too, had to read and reread Paul's words to try to understand. Paul's letters were not always immediately understood 100 uh, percent. But he, when he says you can understand, the idea here is that you can understand through careful reading and study. So even the people in those days were expected to read and meditate and reread and try to understand all that Paul had said. And, and here in this case, he wants you to understand what he calls my insight into the mystery of Christ. This insight is simply referring to what Paul has learned, what Paul has learned through what has been revealed to him, what he has learned and what he has understood. Essentially, he wants you to understand what he understands. He wants you to know what he knows, what he has learned by revelation. And that's why he is writing these letters. And just to back up this point. And hopefully this is an encouragement to you to read and study your scriptures more often. Just to back up this point that not everyone in those days fully understood everything right away. You can take a look at the next slide here. And I have this understanding scripture um, takes a lot of work. And what we see there is 2 Peter chapter 3 verses 15 through 16. Peter actually refers to Paul's letters. And what is it that he says in verse 15? He says, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you. So here Peter is referring to the letters given by Paul and he is equating them with scripture. All right, he's going to equate them with scripture. Verse 16, he says, as also in all of his letters, speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to understand which the untaught and unstable distort. So what's the encouragement for you? The encouragement to you is that even Peter acknowledges that some of Paul's writings are difficult to understand at first glance. But what he says is that they end up getting distorted by who? By the ones who are untaught and unstable. The reason why we go through the scriptures the way we go through them, the reason why I take you verse by verse, the reason why I go into detail to help you understand in greater, in, with greater clarity, with greater comprehension, is for this reason. I do not want you to be untaught and unstable. 
But let this be an encouragement to you that just as even people like Peter had to read carefully, we too must go through the scriptures and go through the same kind of exercise to understand um, these truths that, that Paul brings about. And in this case, Paul's specific insight was not previously understood. Let's take a look at the next verse, verse 5. He points out that in verse 5, Ephesians 3, verse 5, talking about this mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men. So when he talks about in other generations, this is referring to all prior generations. This mystery that he was to share, this was not known to all prior generations, and it refers to all the, basically all the eras leading up to the New Testament, including that of the Old Testament. And when he says it was not made to the sons of men, this refers to all of mankind, but certainly includes even the Old Testament prophets. So even as the Old Testament prophets were bringing forth prophecy, as they were bringing forth what was going to happen in the future, they did not fully understand all the details as they were prophesying about it. In fact, when we take a look at the next verse I'll bring to you, go to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. You'll see that up ahead. Peter reveals that the Old Testament prophets did not know everything. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, he says, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Now, this is not to say that the Old Testament prophets did not understand their own prophecies, but they did not understand all the details. They did not understand how all this was going to come about. In this case, they knew that there would be sufferings of a, of a future Christ, but they didn't know who that person was or when the timing was. But, but you see here that as prophecy is being revealed, we, we have this concept of what I call progressive revelation. If you don't remember at this time, I'm going to be repeating it over and over again throughout uh, my, my time of preaching. Progressive revelation is a very important concept for you to grasp. It's the idea that God does not reveal everything at once. You know, when you, go through Old, when you go through Old Testament and New Testament, when you go through the entire history as laid out in the Bible, God did not reveal all of his plan at one time. But gradually, over time, he would reveal that. And so when we go back to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 5, in the second half of that, after he said, which in other generations had not been made known to the sons of men, as it now has been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. Uh, this, when it says his, his holy apostles, this is talking about God the Father. Because all these things, it's been understood that all these passive verbs that we see, that has been revealed to them, has been given to them. This has been given to them by God. So God is the implied subject of many of Paul's statements here. So this is God's holy apostles and prophets. And, but when he says holy, that the word for holy is also the same word used to refer to us as saints. You may remember in the beginning of the book of Ephesians, Paul is addressing the saints who are in Ephesus. Each and every one of you are saints. Um, literally, the word saint is the, is, is the word to be set apart. It, it's really the, from the same root of the word holy. It means you have been set apart. And if you have been saved, that means you have been set apart from the rest of mankind who are still in their sin. And still need forgiveness of sins. So you have been set apart. But in this case, when he talks about the apostles and prophets, they also have been set apart, but not merely just for salvation, but for a specific purpose. And that purpose was to reveal to us the word as we have it in the New Testament. 
to, to proclaim the truths of Jesus Christ that had not been formerly known. And finally, that last part of verse 5 says, in the Spirit. This describes how those revelations occurred. They occurred in the Spirit. So in other words, it was the Spirit of God who revealed these revelations to the holy apostles and prophets. Just as we have the Word of God today, you can say very accurately that the Bible that we have today was brought to us by the Holy Spirit. It is only by the Holy Spirit that men can actually write the words of God to us. And so this is very important to remember, especially when um, those who um, really dabble with the supernatural gifts, you know, a lot of people that are really deep into the charismatic gifts, uh, Pentecostal uh, movements, they'll come to a church like this one and they'll say, well, yeah, you know, the, the, teaching, um, the teaching seems good, but you guys are not spirit-filled, you guys are not spirit-led. And my first response is, oh, really? Because guess who gave us this? It's the Holy Spirit. To be a church that is spirit-led and spirit-filled doesn't mean that you do supernatural things. It means that you read and you understand and you follow the Word of God. That is what it really means to be spirit-filled. And we'll see that later on in Ephesians as we get to chapter 5 and Paul talks about being filled by the Spirit. So we see here that these truths had not been revealed in prior generations, but now had been revealed to the holy apostles and prophets, of which Paul is one of them. And then verse 6, he's going to get specific, and this will be familiar. If you've been here the last few weeks and heard the preaching through Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, this will be familiar to you. Verse 6 says, to be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, the NASB, if you have an NASB, that opening phrase, to be specific, is in italics. That's really just added by the NASB translators to try to add to, to the clarity here. But what we see here, once again, is a reiteration that Gentiles are not only just saved by God, but now they are part of the household of God. They share in much of the inheritance of Israel. They share in the promises. We even see the word promises there because going back to chapter 2, verse 11, Paul had said that you were once foreigners, you were once strangers to the covenants of promise. But now here, Gentiles are fellow heirs. They are fellow members. They are fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, this might be confusing. I've talked about this a little bit in the past few weeks, but I'll repeat it again. Because the Old Testament, let's make this clear, the Old Testament does promise that Gentiles will be blessed. We know that going all the way to the Abrahamic Covenant. You know, that the Abrahamic Covenant in chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, start off with God speaking to Abraham, saying that your descendants will be a mighty nation. But then in verse 3, it says, and through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. But what was not understood was that not only would they be blessed, but they would be brought into the same household. That they would be considered God's people. That they would be considered God's children. That they would have the same access to God just as the Israelites have had and now do have those who profess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, as Messiah. We all have the same kind of access to God through Jesus Christ. That was the mystery that was not fully understood in the Old Testament that had now been proclaimed in the New Testament and in these times following the ascension of Jesus Christ through God's apostles and prophets. And this is a reminder to us that, you know, these truths that we often take for granted, we, we think of the gospel in very simple terms, and indeed it is a very simple message. 
But we forget just how much history, how much involvement was involved in making these things known to us. How much had happened in the past. And just as I mentioned the history of World War II and and going to Japan and going to Germany and learning more about the impact that World War II had upon those countries. When you go into the scriptures and you have a better understanding of how these things took place, it gives you a greater appreciation for the gospel. And people will feel that. They will hear that when you share it with them. There should be an awe and amazement over the plan of God throughout history as he has brought the gospel to us. And if we go to the next slide here, I'm going to talk a little bit more about progressive revelation. We have this slide here called the progress and process of revelation. And as I had mentioned before, progressive revelation is simply the idea that God's plan was not fully and immediately understood. I mean, it was not all revealed at one time. All right, but it was not fully and immediately understood even by the New Testament apostles and prophets. And let me just give you some examples. The first example here, Peter had to be told in a vision that no food is unclean. That's in Acts chapter 10. Right? When you read through the account of Peter, he had to receive a vision saying that no food is unclean. And he was actually confused as to why he had received that vision. And then he is led to Cornelius' house, and then he puts two and two together and realizes that God is now calling the Gentiles to salvation. And then the next example I have there is Paul. Paul, after his first missionary journey, he had to come to Jerusalem to discuss Gentile salvation, whether it was truly possible without circumcision. Now, for Paul, this was clear. It was not a question in his mind. But for the prophets and apostles who were in Jerusalem, those who comprised of this Christian council, they actually had to discuss it. And consider it. See, a lot of the Jews, when they thought about God's future blessings upon the Gentiles, they thought that the only way that they could actually be fellow members of the household of God would be to be circumcised, would be to to go through the steps of becoming a Jewish proselyte, to take all these steps. But here they're actually talking to one another, saying, is it really possible that Gentiles can be saved without going through these steps? And by the grace of God, Peter had already had his experience with Cornelius in addition to Paul's experience throughout his first missionary journey. And as they come to the end of that chapter, they make a proclamation. They, they announce that, yes, indeed, their understanding of the gospel is that the Gentiles can be saved without having to worry about the works of the law. And that is good news to us. That is good news that it's not by works that we can be saved. It's only by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't have to jump through hoops. You don't have to rely upon your own works in this life, for we know that our works are nothing more than filthy rags. But through Christ Jesus our Lord, faith in him is what brings us to saving faith. And then I've got a third example up there. In Galatians 2, you know, Paul actually had to rebuke Peter. Galatians 2, verses 11 through 14, he actually had to rebuke Peter for treating Gentiles like they were inferior to Jews. He had been sitting and eating with Gentiles, and then as soon as these Judaizers came into their presence, Peter got up and walked away from them as if he was separating himself from them, as if he was holy and they were not. And Paul had to go up to him and rebuke him. Now, I think Peter knew the truth, but in this moment, he had not fully applied that truth into his life the way he was living. And so my point here is that not only were these revelations, not only were these things that we take for granted in the New Testament, not only were they not fully revealed and understood all at one time, but even people like Peter, it took time for him to recognize how he was failing to live them out amongst people, amongst men. 
But we go from now the mystery of Christ, which Paul has talked about, that we're well aware of in bringing two groups together as one, and we transition to the power of God. This is the third section, the power of God. And this is all in verse 7. And Paul, in speaking about this ministry that he has, this mystery that has been revealed to him, verse 7, he says, of which I was made a minister. I was made a minister. Now, minister is the same word as servant. Simply, he was made a servant of God. And the idea that he was made, I mean, you'll see a lot in these verses that Paul is speaking with the passive tense, with the verbs. What do I mean by passive tense? Well, active tense is you're doing the action. Passive is you're the recipient of the action. And you'll see that very often, especially in these seven verses that we're looking at. And a lot of times we refer to these passive as divine passives because it is implied that God is the subject. He's not mentioned, but it is implied that God is the one that is doing this action. And Paul says that he was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. And once again, we see God's grace here being applied to much more than salvation. I mean, God's grace, we see that throughout chapter one as as Paul is is giving praise to, to the glory of God. To the grace of God. In chapter 2, that's when he talks about how salvation, um, salvation is by grace alone through faith. And so Paul is really emphasizing grace. But here, the grace is not just salvation. The grace is that he has been made a minister and a servant. And just like each one of us, each one of you, if you have truly been saved, you are a servant of God. You are a minister wherever you go. Oh, sure, you may not be here up on the pulpit proclaiming God's word. But you should be proclaiming God's word when ever given the opportunity with unbelievers. You should be encouraging each other with God's word when you're with fellow believers, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. You should be counseling each other with God's word. You should be serving one another. We are all servants as well. We just have different ministries, each and every one of us. And as we look at the rest of chapter, uh, verse 7, he, he finishes off with this, this grace which was given to me according to the working of his power, according to the working of his power. Now, this kind of terminology is not the first time Paul mentions this. Uh, when he says the working of his power, the word for working is the same word that we get energy. It's the Greek word energeia. It's, it's the working of his power. And, and the word power is the same word that ended up being used for dynamite. Now, dynamite didn't exist at this time, but the word used in the Greek ended up leading to the word dynamite. So the working of his power, it's this this energetic work of God in exercising his power. And this is being connected to the ministry, as Paul mentions. Now, take a look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19. We see this earlier in chapter 1, verse 19. Chapter 1, verse 19, where he says... And what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. This verse in verse 19, Paul is saying he wants you to know. He wants you to understand. Amongst other things, he wants you to know what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. He wants you to know God's power as it is available to you. And do not misunderstand because a lot of people think of God's power and they think they're going to go out and just perform miracles. You know, let's do miracles of healing. Let's do miracles of moving mountains. Let's do miracles of changing the weather. Whatever it may be, certainly we can pray for those things. 
But when Paul talks about power, you know, I mean, he, he, he talks about power in terms of us being able to do the will of God. And if we look beyond just this verse, I provide um, some other examples. I mean, going beyond verse 19, from verses 20 to 23, he goes on to highlight that power as being demonstrated in Christ when he was raised up and seated at the right hand and, and elevated, exalted beyond, uh, above every name. And then in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, we see God's power, though it is not mentioned explicitly, we saw God's power demonstrated just in your salvation. How did chapter 2 begin? Chapter 2 began, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you followed after the course of the world, you followed after the prince of the power of the air, you even followed after the lusts and desires of your flesh and of your mind. And it was only the power of God that could overcome that. And then the power of God is even seen beyond that in verses 11 through 22 of chapter 2. That, that God, by his power, has brought two groups together into one. And so here, when we're back in chapter 3, what we see here is that God's power is available to Paul in his ministry. It is available to Paul in order for him to do what he needs to do. Now, let me take you to the next slide here. And let's take a look <clears throat> at, um, oh yeah, Ephesians 3.20. I mean, when he gets to the doxology at the end of this chapter, he once again highlights God's power as well. Chapter 3, verse 20, what does he say? He says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us. So once again, Paul is going to finish this chapter, and we'll study that later on. But according to the power that works within us, God can do far more than what we can possibly ask or imagine. And then as we move beyond this, we take a look once again at uh, these seven verses. And I want to just share a few observations with you, and then I'm going to reread this, and, and hopefully you'll have a better appreciation for what Paul is saying. You know, note, first of all, that Paul mentions God's grace in both verses 2 and 7. Verse 2, he mentions it with regards to his stewardship. Verse 7, he mentions it with regards to him being made a minister, um, this gift uh, of God's grace. And then also I have underlined up on the slide here all the instances where we see these passive verbs, where God is implied as being the subject, the one who's taking the action. And my point here is that Paul takes no credit for the work that is being done in his ministry. Let's go ahead and reread this, starting in verse 1. For this reason... I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I write be wrote before in brief, that by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of God as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit. To be specific, that Gentiles are fellow heirs, fellow members, fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And then verse 7, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. Do you see the emphasis of Paul through these verses? The emphasis that he's not the one that's doing the work. God is doing the work. Now, we know Paul endured a lot in order to do what he did. We know that there had to have been a lot of effort on Paul's part. 
but he recognizes that the real success, the real results belong to God. We are simply just instruments. We are simply just vessels. God is working through us to accomplish his good purpose. So for Paul, he takes no credit for his own salvation. He knows his salvation was a work of God. He did not choose God. God chose him. He takes no credit for his apostleship. He did nothing to earn that position. In fact, he was saved and immediately he became an apostle, recognizing that he had done no good works to earn that. He takes no credit for his knowledge. All of this had been revealed to him, as we see emphasized over and over again, even in these seven verses. And he takes no credit for his stewardship and ministry. Ultimately, who is it that gets credit? It's God. God gets all the credit. We merely are just his vessels. We merely are just the ones that are acting on his behalf. But the power belongs to God. The results belong to God. And just as a point of some application notes as we look to close this out, some principles of application, some principles to consider as we have looked at these seven passages, and I think you're already getting the sense of what we can draw from these passages. But first, consider your stewardship. Consider your stewardship both within the body of Christ and when you're out and amongst unbelievers. All of you have been gifted. If for nothing else, you have been gifted with the gospel. And we have been given the Great Commission, which means that we are to make disciples of all the nations. That implies that we share the good news of salvation. But not only that we share the good news of salvation, but to those who are saved, we seek to help teach and instruct. We make disciples. That's the idea of making disciples. We have a stewardship. And just as Paul recognizes his stewardship before God, we too must recognize our stewardship before God. And just as Paul recognizes that the power and the success of his ministry is all in God's hands, we too must recognize the same. We just need to be able to step out in faith and to do what God has called us to do. The success, the power is in God's hands. It's not up to us to come up with methods or try to get clever or try to resort to wisdom that is outside the Bible. Just stick to God's word. God will strengthen your ministry just by your faithfulness to his word. And the next point I would bring up is to reflect on the power of God available to you. I've already just mentioned this, but reflect upon it because the power of God, when it's being brought up, the power of God is not for you to do supernatural things. The power of God is for you to be able to do God's will in a world that hates God. Knowing that this world, that the people of this world who are not saved will continue to follow after the course of this world. They will continue to follow after the prince of the power of the air. We have temptations all around us. We have temptations in our heart. We have temptations coming in from the culture. We we have all kinds of temptations surrounding us. We're in spiritual warfare. Satan is coming after us. Demons are coming after us to try to discredit the Lord. But the power of God will sustain you through that if you walk with him. The third point I would bring up is to trust in his sovereignty to accomplish his will. God is fully in control. Just as Paul could say that he was a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Just as Paul knows that God is the one who brought about the power to make everything successful, make everything happen, that happened. We can trust in God's sovereignty and his power to accomplish his will. We simply glorify God by simply obeying what he says. Look, if we obey God and we don't see the results, that's okay. We glorify God just in our willingness to obey God. 
God is the one that's going to bring about the results. And this is what I I call the trust and obey principle. Trust in God's sovereign purposes. Trust in how God is bringing about these circumstances. Remember, Paul here is in prison. And you can read through some of his testimony, how he's been beaten, how he's been stoned, left for dead. All these things. And yet he knows that God is in control. God is the one that's bringing about his good result. And my fourth point there is to give thanks for God's grace. Give thanks for God's grace in giving you his word. And not just his word. The word of God, which is inspired, that comes to us by the Holy Spirit, which is all we need for life and godliness. All we need to grow in our knowledge. All we need to grow as Christians. All we need to be able to become more like Christ. But also he gives us this wonderful opportunity to be able to serve him. I mean, we're talking about the creator of the universe. We're talking about the king of all kings and the Lord of hosts. We are given not only the the blessing of being saved, but we are given the opportunity to serve him, to glorify him, to go out and to represent him. And beloved, that is a tremendous, tremendous blessing. We are not merely just saved and pushed off to the side. We are. As imperfect as we are, as broken as we are, even as as believers, we continue to stumble in various ways. And yet God uses broken vessels for his glorious purposes and as to his glory and honor. Now, if you're here this morning for the first time and you do not know this Lord Jesus Christ. I would call upon you now to consider your standing before God, because all of us are sinners All of us will have to stand in judgment. The Bible says that it is appointed for man to die once and then comes judgment. That is true for each and every one of us. And any sin in your life will condemn you because God is a perfect and holy God. But the blessing of our God, the blessing of his love is that he so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son into the world that whosoever shall believe in him will not perish but have life everlasting. And so at this point, I would call upon you, if you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, I would call upon you to repent of your sins and to put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins means you turn away from your prior ways of living. And and turning towards Jesus Christ means that you have devoted your life now to becoming more like Christ, to following after his example. And it's a simple matter. You, You do not earn your salvation. There is no amount of good works that you can do to be approved by God. The only way to be approved by God is to recognize the only one who is perfectly approved by God, and that is his son, Jesus Christ. Confess him as Lord and Savior. And for the rest of us, I trust that these principles, these, these, these verses are an encouragement to you, that they have been informative and in helping you to understand just Paul's heart as he kind of opened up this little bit of biographical sketch and how God has worked in his life to bring about uh, these mysteries, these truths. Do not neglect them. Encourage one another with them and help bring the gospel to those who need it. Now, at this time, I'd like to be able to um, close out in prayer. And then after that, we will start our communion service. So let's pray.